Welcome to the Faith for My Generation podcast, where our vision is to shake and shape a generation with the power of God's Word. We're on one mission, to raise up a generation of powerful believers through the relevant teaching of God's Word. I'm so thankful that you're here today. I'm your host, AJ. Let's get into the episode. Are you willing to give your highest gifts to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Will you consecrate yourself as an offering unto God? Do you see Him worthy of all that you have, that you possess, all that you manage, all that you are? Is there anything in your life that you will hold back? Good morning, this is your wake-up call. It's wake-up call 098, Gifts for a King. It's a Christmas special episode I'm your host, AJ. This is the Faith for My Generation podcast. I'm so thankful that you're here watching and that you're listening. Let's get right into it. Let's go to Matthew chapter 2. and We're going to read a couple verses in Matthew chapter 2, break it down, and then get to the heart of those questions that I asked towards you, towards me, towards all those that are listening. And really what I want to get to is the heart of the life of the believer. It is a gift that is very precious. And it's actually the greatest gift we can give to the Lord. And He is worthy of it. That's where I want to get us to. But it's going to be just a little bit of a journey to get there. Matthew chapter 2. Let's read verse 1 and read into verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me so that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now at the time of this recording, it's a few weeks out from Christmas, and um, last year we did two episodes for Christmas. This year we're going to do two episodes concerning Christmas and I guess you might say Christmas themed. Now, um, with that being said, we're reading the portion of what might tr- be traditionally called the Christmas story concerning the wise men. 
Now, I hope you understand, and I, not to kick over any sacred cows, uh, but generally speaking, the traditional Christmas story um, has scriptural parts to it, of course, but it is uh, there's some creative license, I'll put it that way. And I'm not a big stickler on it. I mean, the more you study and read about the birth of Christ and the things that transpire, that take place during that process, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that we see over time have become more or less tradition and folklore, not necessarily line by line, verse by verse scripture. You know, there's a couple things. For instance, we celebrate Christmas on December 25th. More than likely, Jesus was born late March, early April. And actually, it's very beautiful when you begin to see why that is prophetic. Jesus was born the same time the lambs were born because Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so he was born around the same time the lambs would be born. Those very lambs that would later become sacrifices at the temple, he too being a lamb, the Lamb of God, he too would become the sacrifice for the sins of the world willingly, obediently going to the cross to shed his innocent blood for the sake of a lost and dying world. It's, it's powerful when you think about it. But of course, with every manger scene, every Christmas story, we see these wise men. Um, and we, so, so first, let, let's get into who are these wise men? Verse 1 of Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi, M-A-G-I, magi. Now, who are these wise men? Who are these magi? Of course, you know, there's the Christmas song, We Three Kings, right? Um, they weren't necessarily kings. Uh, I guess they could have been, but Scripture tells us that they're magi, they're wise men. Essentially, they are of the same type of class of people that we see in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. So just like Nebuchadnezzar had this court filled with astrologers, magicians, sorcerers, Chaldeans, wise men, oracles, prophets, though, you know, other than Daniel and his buddies in that day, uh, all pagan, of course, uh, but studiers of the stars, astrologers into astronomy, astrology, uh, different soothsayings and things like this. So really we don't know much about these guys, these magi, these wise men, uh, except they're probably that type of cast of, of people. Uh, specifically, we don't know the number. You know, of course we see the three wise men, right? Well, we see they brought three types of gifts. But how many wise men there were, there could have been a hundred of them. We don't know. Uh, we don't know their nationality. Frankincense and myrrh was grown and developed around the Horn of Africa, which is like the northeastern part of Africa. Uh, that's where myrrh and frankincense is grown. And, and both of those are spices. Both of those are fragrances, perfumed type fragrances that come from plants. It's actually the sap from particular plants in the northeastern portion of Africa. Uh, 
near Somaliland is what it's called, the Horn of Africa. It's east of Sudan and, and uh, Egypt. In fact, if they came from there, they're, they're in the Horn of Af Africa. If you're watching, you can see my hand kind of the pathway. They're dropping down through Sudan, Egypt, cutting back through, what is it, it would be uh, Moab and Syria and that area and coming up into Israel probably about a 1,000, 1,500-mile trip, if that's where they're coming from. We don't know, though. We just know that's where frankincense and myrrh was grown and developed, and it was shipped out. It was an export of that region. But we do know this, that they were definitely probably a priestly cast of people that uttered prophecies, uh, explained omens, interpreted dreams, practiced divination. And something galactically supernatural took place. These are people who, they're constantly studying the stars. It's amazing. E.W. Bullinger was a minister from the 1800s, master scholar of the Hebrew and Greek languages. He actually wrote a book in his day called The Witness of the Stars. And the gospel, the gospel story is in the stars of the sky. Uh, the constellations that are oftentimes connected to Greek or Roman mythology, actually, you can tell the entire gospel story through the stars. And some even reason that years ago, because things kind of move over the course of time, that in the pattern of the stars of the sky, it was even more easy to see illustrations of God's truth uh, because creation itself is witnessing that there is a creator, there is a redeemer, there is a savior, and that he has come to save people that put their faith in him. And so E.W. Bullinger put that book together, Witness of the Stars. That's interesting because these men obviously are studying stars because they notice in verse 2, it says this, Matthew 2, 2, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. So notice that. That they just come out of the blue. They, they go to the capital of Israel because they're looking for the king of the Jews, so that makes sense. Go to Jerusalem where the throne is and um, ask the guy who is currently king, hey, so we've been watching these stars, and again, how long was this? Probably a year or two out. When Jesus is born, there's a star that appears. And it's, it's amazing when you think about it. When God put on flesh and became a man, or rather a baby, and was birthed into the earth, something galactic in scale shook the universe to where the star, boom, it's, it's there. The star that they're following, was it? did it explode into existence the moment Jesus is born? I don't know. I don't know. I, I just know that it says, verse 2, that they see his star in the east. They saw something change. Something happened. And these men who studied the night skies saw an irregularity, noticed it, and then obviously began to search out the books, oracles, prophecies, probably not just of Hebrew oracles and prophecies or what we would call the Old Testament, 
but probably many diverse scrolls and oracles and prophecies of many different religions. Zoroastrian, I think is uh, how you would pronounce it, is what one commentator said that they, could, they possibly could have been. Babylonian or something like that, ancient origins of the Babylonian Empire. Um, nonetheless, they're studying the stars and they see something takes place and it piques their interest and they begin to study and search and then they find Numbers 24, verse 17. The book of Numbers, chapter 24, verse 17, this peculiar prophet named Balaam who backslides and sells out his gift to the Moabites and dies with the enemies of Israel he prophesied, and it was true, an unction of the Holy Spirit, but he fell off and backslid shortly thereafter. But Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. Isaiah 60 verse 3, Isaiah prophesies this, The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So there we have in two different places, but specifically in verse 24, I see his star. Balaam, Balaam is looking through the eyes of the prophetic, and he's seeing down history's timeline, I see one that is coming, and he's prophesying of Jesus, and I see his star. I see the one here that will come. He, he's, he's there, but not right now. He, he's coming, but he's not exactly here yet. But I can see a star. Now, let's, let's keep going. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So imagine, think about it. If Herod and all of Jerusalem was troubled... It probably, you know, again, I'm not just trying to kick over sacred cows. It probably wasn't just three guys. Probably was a huge caravan. Even if it was just three or four guys, for them to travel a 1,000 miles, 1,500 miles by camel or donkey or horse, they would have dozens of animals. If they have, they're bringing wealth with them. They probably have armed guards and soldiers with them. I mean, they're, you know... It's a dangerous thing to do to, to, to carry these expensive, extravagant gifts that they give to the Lord Jesus. Uh, so it's probably a pretty big entourage coming in. They obviously are not Hebrew. They're not Roman. They probably look really different than most of the people in town, and they stick out like a sore thumb because all of Jerusalem was troubled with Herod. Verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. So Herod's like, wait a minute, I'm king. Now this Herod is Herod the Great. He basically purchased his throne uh, from the Roman Empire and uh, the Roman government, and he was very ruthless. This Herod killed his two brothers, murdered his wife um, because of just wanting to make sure he kept his throne. Uh, over the course of his life, he married nine different women to establish political alliances. He was absolutely ruthless. He was wicked and ruthless and cutthroat. And so the first, so when he hears these visitors from out of town say, "Hey, we're looking for the new king," he's like, "Wait a minute, 
I'm the only king around here. Now, so what does he do? <clears throat> verse 5. So when they said to him, he get, or verse 4, he gathers the chief priests and scribes. Well, they begin to go search the scripture. So they said to him, Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are you not the least among the rulers of Judah? For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. So these Jewish priests and scribes, these rabbis, they come to Herod and they say, Oh yeah, the king they're referring to is what the prophet Micah prophesied. Now verse 7, it says this, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So he's talking, conversating, when did this star appear? Verse 8, When he'd sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you find him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Well, obviously Herod has no intentions of worshiping Jesus. He's wanting to take him out to make sure that his throne is established. But before we move on through from these passages, I want you to see this. You've got three groups of people, and they're all, they all have different intentions. The Magi, the wise men, they're seeking the king. Herod is opposing the king. He's looking to take him out. And these scribes and priests are ignoring a king. Isn't it interesting that it's not the Jewish scribes and priests and people that study the law and study the scriptures, they know what the wise men are looking for, know who they're looking for. They can answer Herod's question with scripture. But they don't leave to go look for the Messiah. That's a kind of a big deal. They're like, oh yeah, Micah prophesied about that. Good luck, guys. See you later. E.W. Bullinger, I've already mentioned him once, but he's, he, this is a great quote that he put together. He said this, This incident shows that intellectual knowledge of the scriptures without experimental, experimental delight in them is useless. Basically, you can have head knowledge of the Word of God, but if it don't get in your heart and change you, it doesn't matter. You can quote the scriptures, but unless you're living them, breathing them, believing them, and acting on them, there's no power being brought into your life. The, he writes this, The scribes had no desire toward the person of the governor, speaking of Christ. Micah 5.2 says a ruler, a governor. Whereas the wise men were truly wise in that they sought the person of him of whom the scriptures spoke and were soon found at his feet. I mean, they're looking for this man, this ruler, this, this governor. They don't know it's, a, it's just a baby yet. Head knowledge without heart love may be used against Christ. And notice that. Is that not what the Pharisees and scribes did throughout all of Jesus' ministry? They're warring with him because, now not all of them. Nicodemus, I'm re reminded of him right now. He was a, he was a chief ruler and a priest, but, but he was a God-fearer. He was a follower he was a disciple of Jesus because his heart was changed. He was born again, I believe, when Jesus told him he had to be born again. He, he found new life. He found eternal life in Christ, who is the door to eternal life. But many of these other scribes and priests, 
the chief priest, Ananias. I mean, Caiaphas, they're, they're, they're doing everything they can to stop Jesus and eventually nail him to a cross. Now, these wise men, verse 9, it says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. So for some reason, for some reason, the star went dark when they got close to Jerusalem. This is why they go to Herod. That's why they make this pit stop. They're asking about where he is. But then when they leave, they see the star again, and the star remains over where Jesus is. Now, it's interesting because the Jewish scribes and priests and chief rulers, they say, yeah, Micah 5 too. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, it says it. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are you not the least among the rulers of Judah? But they more than likely, the wise men, ended up in Nazareth. Now, why do we believe that? Or why would I suppose that and it's not Bethlehem? Well, there's a couple things going on. One, at this point in time, Jesus is no longer a newborn babe laying in a manger. Again, I told you we're, we may knock over a few sacred cows. I'm, you know, hey, I've got a, we've got a manger scene in my house. I'm not going to make a huge deal out of it. But just we're rightly dividing the word, looking at it line by line, uh, precept by precept, word by word. Uh, at this point, Jesus is probably a toddler. In fact, you notice it says young child over and over and over. It doesn't say babe. Like the angel of the Lord says in Luke chapter 2. Uh, and this will be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. No, this is the young child. Young child. Now, the kind of the timeline of Jesus, and maybe we'll do those as replays uh, here in the Christmas season, but from last year, uh, two of my favorite, two of my absolute favorite people that encountered Jesus when he is a baby, we, we don't ever talk about, is Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna, they were mightily used of God. They were a prophet and prophetess of the Lord. Uh, Simeon is an old prophet, and he and he's waiting and he's believing God. And he says, "Lord, don't let me see death till I see the Messiah." And Anna, she serves the Lord in the temple in prayer and in fastings, and they both prophesy under the unction of the Holy Ghost. Uh, and it's in Luke chapter two when we see that when Jesus is born. Joseph and Mary fulfill the law. 41 days later, basically, after Jesus, you have to wait 40 days, according to the Mosaic law, that they have a son, so they have to go, one, he's circumcised, I believe, at eight days, but on the 40th day, which is the end time of Mary's purification, she now can go to the temple because she is now clean after giving childbirth, once again can enter in. They go and they offer up their offerings for their firstborn son and the offering that was required when you had a son to redeem the son, in a sense, by giving an offering. They do that. That's when they encounter Simeon and Anna. And that's when, in fact, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the language that's used there, that I think that's when Mary ponders these things. Let's see if it's Luke chapter 2. Simeon's in verse 25 through 35, Anna's between 36 and 49. 
Yeah, verse 39 of Luke 2. So when they had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned, notice this, to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So notice the timeline. Jesus is born, shepherds, angels sing, shepherds come to see Jesus at the time when he is born. They wait there in Bethlehem for 40 days. They go to the temple in Jerusalem and they offer up the offering for the firstborn son. And then they leave and go back to Galilee, that region, into the city of Nazareth. And that's where he grows up. Because if we continue to read, verse 11 says this, And when they had come into the house, this is Matthew 2.11, the Magi, the wise men, when they had come into the house, not stable, not in, not manger, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and his mother and his Mary and Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him and when they had opened their treasures they presented gifts to him gold frankincense and myrrh so again just you know for us to be good students of the Bible more than likely Jesus is a toddler he's in a house not a stable at this point in time they return Luke tells us they return from Bethlehem to Galilee that region the specific specifically the city Nazareth. And there is where the Magi, the wise men, come and give gifts. Now, let's transition a little bit here. They give Jesus gifts. What I want to see, you see want you to see is this. In matters of consecration and, and what we should give to the Lord Jesus Christ, the first gift they give is gold. Now, what is gold? Well, gold obviously is very costly, it would be extremely valuable. It's more valuable than silver, than brass, than bronze. Aluminum, iron, and sheet metal. <laughs> it's very costly. It's valuable. It's a form of currency. It has an intrinsic value. Uh, just the very fact that it is gold carries a value within itself. People use it to buy and sell, to acquire desired things, services, or property. Gold is something that is very precious and valuable and costly. Now, what's beautiful about this is more than likely this gold, this frankincense, this myrrh, all basically provided for J Joseph, Mary, and Jesus when they are fleeing to Egypt because verse 13, an angel tells Joseph, hey, get up, leave, go to Egypt, and stay there till I tell you to come back because Herod's going to try to kill Jesus. And also that's why we add to it because Herod, when he realizes he's deceived by the wise men, he sends out a decree to go and kill all the children that are two years old and young under. So he's just trying to cover all his bases. Maybe Jesus is not, he's thinking, well, baby, well, what if he's older now? This time the uh, Magi told me about when they saw his star. So they give them these gifts that obviously sustained them to their trip to Egypt and while they were there. But what I want you to see is this. They gave gifts to a king. They probably didn't realize that he was going to be just a child. Maybe they did. I don't know. They just saw the star. But they bring gifts, gifts worthy of a king. And again, they probably had 
sacks full, chests full. I mean, if you're going to travel 1,000, 1,500 miles, you're not bringing a $50 gift card. (laughs) You're packing it on and packing it in to show that this king is worthy of your time. It would have taken months, probably, uh, to travel that hard trek by foot and by, by animal. So they bring him gold. Now, what can you and I give that is valuable to the Lord? 1 Peter 1 verse 18 says this, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, though silver and gold are very price of valuable and priceless in a sense, they can decay, they can tarnish, and eventually they can actually be destroyed if you take the temper out of them. Knowing that you are not redeemed from corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Now think about that. You were purchased not with silver, not with gold. You were purchased with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, sinless blood. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or even a good theologian to know this. Very common sense. Anything, a value of a thing is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay. Let me say that one more time because I stuttered a little bit when I was starting to say it. The value of a thing is determined by the price someone is willing to pay. So there are some things that are valuable to me that may not be valuable to you and vice versa because I am willing to pay a certain amount for an item or a thing or a service that you might not pay for and you the same that I might not pay for. So the value of an item, a service, a thing, an entity, uh, a possession is determined by the price someone is willing to pay. And what was the price that God the Father was willing to pay for you? The life of His own Son, the blood of Christ, That makes you extremely, extremely valuable. There has not been any greater price ever paid in the existence of existence. I was going to say humanity. In all existence, there has never been a price paid as high as the one that was paid to purchase you, to redeem you. Now think about this. This is the sole purpose why Christ came to the earth. Luke 19.10 For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why He came. That's why Jesus was born a baby in a manger. You know, the Christmas story that we're talking about. That's why it all took place. So the Son of Man could come to seek and to save that which was lost. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. Verse 8 says this, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece, the one piece out of ten. I had the other nine, but I lost one. I found the one which I lost. Verse 10 of Luke 15. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Over one sinner who repents. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So think about that. 
Just as this little woman searched for a lost silver coin, Christ so desires to search and to seek out and to save those that are lost. Matthew 16, 26 says this, For what profit is to a man if he gains the whole world, loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What, let me ask you this question. What would you exchange for your eternity with God? I don't know about you, but I would exchange nothing. There is nothing that I would sell my soul for. Nothing. Not, nada. Not a thing. And this is why your life is so valuable. Think about it. There is a cosmic level war taking place over the souls of mankind. The kingdom of hell wants to manipulate and dominate and enslave people. Jesus wants to encounter them, love them, redeem them, sanctify them, save them, and restore them. And there's a war taking place over the souls of mankind. So these wise men, they gave gold, something very precious to Christ, but what can you and I give that is more precious? Our very lives, all that we are, our complete and total loyalty and allegiance to Him, our faith in Him, to confess Him Lord, that is a gift of high, high value because the price that was paid for you to be saved and redeemed makes you very costly to God. What's the second gift that the wise men gave? They gave them, they gave Jesus, they presented gifts to him, frankincense. So what is frankincense? Frankincense, just so you know, it's a balsamic gum from the plants of the genus Boswelli. Who knows what that is? I don't know, but that's what it told me when I looked it up, which are native to South Arabia and northern Somaliland, which is in that horn of Africa. The residue, once exuded, hardens into a natural resin that is considered the finest burning incense in the world. In the Old Testament, frankincense was used primarily for worship. It was one of the ingredients for the incense in the tent of meeting. This incense was holy and treated similarly to the anointing oil. Frankincense was used with grain offerings and bread offerings, and its use continued in worship even through the post-exilic era in Nehemiah, excuse me, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, that time of rebuilding and all that. Now, so frankincense, it is a spice. It is a incense. It is something that is burned. It is something that you light it and burn it so that you can smell it. It's a beautiful smell. And it is, as according to this commentary, it is one of the finest incense in the world to smell. Well, what is it that we can give God that is an aroma? That is a sweet smell to the Lord. Believe it or not, the scripture actually tells us that there is something that we can give to the Lord that is a sweet-smelling aroma, just like frankincense is to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God and Christ. Notice this, verse 14. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ through us diffuses, manifests, makes known the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Maybe you have a diffuser in your house, you know, where you can drop in, I guess, like scented oils, um, essential oils, things like that. Drop a few drops in with some water and it diffuses throughout the house. It fills up the house with that fragrance. Uh, and sometimes these different oils have medicinal qualities to it and things like that. But Christ in you and me, the victory of Christ, Him dwelling and empowering us, the believer, is actually like a diffuser. Our lives, when we talk like Christ, when we walk like Christ, when we live for Him, when we're being led by the Holy Ghost, when we're obeying the Word of God, when we're helping to build the church of the Lord Jesus, when we're winning people to Christ, when we're walking the path of righteousness, on the highway of holiness, when we're glorifying God, it's like there's a diffuser with a sweet aroma of frankincense, if you will, or other spices being lifted up to the nostrils of God. Verse 15, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ. When we're living like Christ, it's like God smelling the fragrance of that offering, just as it was in the Old Testament, of Christ. Among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. Now notice verse 16 tells us that we let off a fragrance or an odor or a smell or an aroma that may be different to some people. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. To those who do not have faith in Christ, when they smell our fragrance, they think we stink. Oh, here's those Christians again. Are you kidding me? Seriously? You really believe that Bible story stuff? Come on, man. Really? There's a story in there about a donkey talking. Really? Are you serious? You and I actually are a stench <laughs> to a fallen world when they don't put their faith in Christ. But to the other, verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 2, aroma of life leading to life. To those who have put their faith in Christ, to those who do believe on Jesus, we are a sweet smell and a sweet aroma. So let us live a life that truly is a sweet smell and aroma in the nostrils of God. It's interesting in Genesis 8, 21, it says this, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. This is after the flood has all dried up. Noah, the first thing Noah does when he gets out of the ark is he sacrifices one of each of the clean animals. Then the Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. The first thing that Noah does after the flood recedes back into the earth is he brings a sacrifice of animals to the Lord in worship. And God smells it, and it's a sweet, soothing, smelling aroma. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to bring judgment like I did then. And then, of course, we know in Genesis 9, he shows by sign of the rainbow he'll never flood the earth again because he smelled that sweet, smell that sweet aroma. Let our lives be a sweet smell, a sweet fragrance in the nostrils of God. Now lastly, they presented gifts to Jesus and the last one is myrrh. 
So what is myrrh? Myrrh is very much like frankincense. In the Old Testament, myrrh was used for worship and perfume. It was one of the ingredients for the anointing oil used in the tent of meeting, like frankincense. This oil was holy and only used in consecrating the tent and the furniture. Myrrh was also used in cosmetic, cosmetics and perfumes. Eight of the twelve instances of the word in the Old Testament are used in the Song of Solomon, that love song. In the New Testament, myrrh is one of the three gifts the Magi gave to Jesus. We saw that. Mark notes that wine mixed with myrrh was offered to Jesus on the cross as a means of pain relief, and he didn't drink it. He refused to drink it when he realized it was wine mingled with myrrh because he did not want anything to, to soothe the pain. Nicodemus used myrrh when preparing Christ's body after the crucifixion. John 19.38 after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. Verse 39, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And of course, they anointed the body of Jesus for burial with this fragrance, this incense, this oil known as myrrh. Now, it's interesting, in the New Testament, we only see myrrh three times. Once as a gift to Jesus when he is but a young child. And the two other times we see it is at the death of Christ. Once mingled in with the wine to create this kind of narcotic type pain reliever, which he did not take, he refused it. And the other time we see it is when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea anoint his body with this myrrh that was used often as an embalming agent, something that was used when they would embalm bodies, prepare it for burial. They use this myrrh as a, as a way just honestly to scent the body as it decayed. It would not be such a terrible smell, but actually something that was a little soothing at the time, beginning, of course, I'm sure it decayed over time. But think about that. This gift of myrrh is connected to his death. Now, gifts for a king, and here we are talking about death, but notice this, Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 7, it says this, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ, but and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Notice this, verse 10 of Philippians 3, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Notice that, verse 10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. A gift that we give to the Lord Jesus Christ is actually to not just know Him in the power of His resurrection, but to fellowship in sufferings and be conformed to His death. To follow that pathway of the cross, 
Jesus told us, if anyone wants to follow me, come and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. There is a dying in the life of the believer that is sweet and holy unto God. We have to die to this world. We must die to sin. And we have to die to self. My friend, member of the faithful, let me tell you something. It may not sound fun, but it is good, it is holy, it is wonderful to die to yourself. Certainly to die to this world and absolutely to die to sin. If Jesus, our Lord and Master, went the way of the cross in order to be exalted and seated in heavenly places, if we are to follow Him, we too will pass through that way of the cross and daily will crucify this flesh in desires that try to rear themselves up against the will of God. Because when we know Him and the power of His resurrection, we also fellowship in His sufferings and conform to His death. You know, there, there will be times where people will rail accusations against you, will come against you, mock you, make fun of you. Guess what? It's a form of dying to the world and saying, you know what? They hated Jesus. They'll hate me. At least I'm in very good company. And, and count it all honor. Count it all honor if you receive persecutions for the name of Christ. If you're doing something wrong, eh, don't, be, don't count that honorable. But if you're receiving persecutions and tribulations for the name of Christ, count it. Make, be joyful. Wear a smile. You are, part of the, you are part of the faithful who are following Christ so much that the world sees Jesus in you to the point it makes them rile themselves up. Not everyone. Many will come to Christ because of your witness. I believe it in Jesus' name. But there'll be some that just can't stand it and they'll push back. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Notice this. John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. When we walk this path, the path of the cross... That is how we get to the place of the power of His resurrection. And that's a gift we give to the Lord Jesus Christ. When we die to self and we are alive unto Him. So as I began, are you willing to give the highest gifts you have to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Will you consecrate yourself as an offering unto God? Do you see Jesus worthy of all that you have, all that you possess, all that you manage, and all that you are? Is there anything in your life or your life itself that you will hold back? I, my friends, believe that you have said no to all those questions. There is nothing you will hold back. There is nothing you're not willing to give. There's no price you're not willing to pay, no cost too high to follow Christ. And I, too, will say that exactly with you in total agreement. Let us go all out for Jesus. In this time of Christmas season when we're celebrating His birth, let us consecrate, set ourselves apart for Him again and again and again and say, Lord, You are worthy. In fact, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I lift up every single member of the faithful. 
Lord, we have purpose in our hearts to say to you, Lord, you are worthy of all praise, all glory, all honor. You are kind and you are merciful. You are our King. You are our Lord. And we will hold nothing back from you. All that we are, we give unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm so thankful for you that you join me. This wake-up call, make sure you catch the Thursday drop of the episode, two episodes every week on the Faith for My Generation podcast. I'm thankful for you. Remember, He is the King of glory, and He is worthy of our gifts. I know that you will freely give the gifts you have for Him in Jesus' name because we are the faithful. I'll see you next time. God bless you. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of the Faith for My Generation podcast. Remember, every Monday I've got a brand new wake-up call for you, and every Thursday I've got a brand new episode right here on Faith for My Generation podcast. And remember, we are the faithful.